Hello and welcome to Where RA Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with former RAs and hearing where their journey of life has taken them since their glory days at New York University. I am tonight's co-host, Eleron Oz, a junior from Amersfoort in the Netherlands, studying politics and European Mediterranean studies and an RA in Coral. And I'm Tom Ellett, the other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. Eleron, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. What got you to choose NYU all the way from a different part of the world? It's it's a it's a long story, you know. I moved to New Hampshire with my whole family, and then went to private school there. When it was time to look for colleges, you know, I looked all across the Eastern Seaboard. I decided I wanted to stay here. Didn't want to go back. Looked around, you know. Eventually, I visited here with my mom. It wasn't maybe my first choice, but I think it's one of the greatest decisions I've made. I'm so happy here. The past three years have been a blast. That's awesome. And Union Square, being an RA up there, yeah. what's that like? It's nice being so close to everything, you know. Being a couple of minutes walk from the Union Square station is really convenient. And there's so much going on. I see Joe's Pizza from my window. Best pizza in New York City. You can't really complain about that. My wife and you would get along very well <laughs> because I like Bravo, and she always... Mm. Wa- I know, it's no. all greasy. It's all greasy. Yeah. So tell me what's been the pinnacle experiences of NYU to date. Freshman year commencement, that was, of course, something. Javier Munoz spoke, what a man. But besides that, I don't know. There, there, There's just been a lot of kind of... For me, it's been a lot about smaller moments, mm-hmm. which kind of just have added up and have made me realize like how lucky I am to be here. And you take advantage of New York City, I take it. I try to as much as I can. This past semester, I was abroad in London last semester, and then I came back. And I must say that, you know, in the past uh, couple of months, been to Washington Heights, went to went to Brooklyn a couple of times for a class. We went to Corona Meadows Park, which was beautiful. Yeah, I've kind of been all over since coming back. It's been great. That's great. And today we have a guest who's kind of in and of the city of New York as well. Exactly. Who's our guest? Today, our guest is Clive Chang, who served as an Uptown Area RA, working under the leadership of David Jones and Joanna Champion during the 2008-2009 academic year. Welcome, Clive, and thank you for joining us on today's show. Oh, thank you for having me. So, uh, how are you, and where are you? I am doing just great. I feel like spring is in the air. I'm very happy about it. I am in my office in Times Square. We're literally in the middle of Times Square, 42nd and 7th, um, and I've wrestle all the tourists every single day coming in and out of the office. Clive, it is great to hear your voice. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, let's start early in in your career. Where did you attend undergrad? I went to McGill University in Montreal, and I am Canadian in case. You are Canadian, yes. And and then, and and you, what did you study there? I studied a Bachelor of Music in Composition and Piano and a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance. Uh, and we'll see here later how those two connect. Uh, so what got you to come to NYU for your graduate degree? Aside from the fact that it's amazing, it was actually that at that moment in time, I kind of had to try to decide between the business path and the music path. And I was exploring a bunch of things. But throughout my undergrad, I actually started growing a little bit weary of the classical world and discovered musical theater through music directing while I was an undergrad and I was doing my research and actually a fellow RA of mine in undergrad sent me this link to the Tisch graduate musical theater writing program and said, oh my goodness, isn't this the thing you have to go do? And 
you know, I, I found it and I applied and of course the rest is history. But, you know, this, at the time it was the only graduate program in the world that was dedicated to the writing of musical theater. And I was just blown away that it even existed. That's great to hear. So then what made you apply to be a grad RA when you came here for the degree? I was an RA in, in undergrad for four years because to do those two degrees, I had to be there for five in total. And I just loved every moment of it and, you know, was already missing it from undergrad days. And I just love community and I love people and I just missed having, you know, a posse. So it was kind of just a no-brainer. Like, I mean, if you guys allowed people to apply before even coming to school, I would have done it. And you would have been hired, too, I have no (laughs) doubt. Tell me how different it was to be an RA in Toronto and then being an RA at NYU. Yeah, in Montreal, you mean. I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. I (laughs) apologize. You're from Toronto. Yeah, I am from Toronto. Yeah. Uh, That's where. Okay. You know, truly, aside from just being at a slightly more evolved stage of life, being a grad student, it wasn't all that different. Unlike a lot of schools, I think, where undergraduate RAs are given some sort of authoritative mandate where they have the power to, you know, write up residence and make sure everything's on track, McGill actually didn't function that way. And very much like my NYU days, the whole ethos was about influencing without authority. And it was really about how do you build a community and how do you have candid and tough conversations with your fellow residents without any power to actually do anything to prevent them from making a choice, right? So it was all about how best practices and giving guidance and how to you know, softly build up influence even without some kind of formal a power to do so. So it was, I would say they were, they were really quite the same. I think in grad school, residents are a lot more focused on their career path. And so, you know, Uptown was a lot of medical students and dental students and, and people who are just, you know, they devote most of their lives to school. So I would say it was probably a little quieter than, than my undergrad days. But aside from that, I think of the pretty similar. What was it then like, though, being, you know, now a grad RA, being someone working on a master's with all of these medical students, all of these grown people, and then also still having the the mixture of RAs with, like, some undergraduate RAs, some graduate RAs, that, like, mix of ages, that mix of what you, exactly what you were saying, where people are in their life. How, how did that, how did that mesh? How did that work? I thought it was so great because you, not that, graduate students are of a different generation, but you certainly had the whole, you know, informal mentorships, right, happening between the grad RAs and the undergrad RAs, even just organically. I also just think, like, I, I like to surround myself with people who are much younger, people who are much older, even just to be relevant beyond just my generational cohort, you know? Like, what do what do people in there... 60s listen to or you know how do they receive their news versus how does a 15 year old consume media and you know do they even read the news and if so how you know so i think it's just fascinating that you know if it could be wider it'd be better clev you talked about the importance of community in your life maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see community evolving for you as you go through Montreal and NYU and now in your life? For those of us who have sort of spent a chunk of time 
in one place and then a good chunk of time in another place. I think we're used to the process of rebuilding our communities anytime we're in a new you know, environment. I think that also affords ourselves an opportunity to reflect on you know, the, the community that we're quote-unquote exiting and think about, okay, who are the people in this community that are most important for me to keep in touch with life? And, you know, how have my values changed as a result of my experiences in this community? I actually think back and don't, I don't take any, I have no regret or have no, you know, I don't hold it against anybody who I no longer keep in touch with, right, from a previous community, because I think we shared, uh, we shared moments together while we were there and we appreciated it for what it was. And we can't all be in touch with everybody in our lives forevermore, right? So I kind of love this kind of nomadic transgression from one to the next. And I think it also is very educational for me personally, just to kind of think back on what were the most important things that I got that are still parts of my life from my undergrad experience versus from my NYU days versus from my Harvard days versus from my Lincoln Center days and now in my Disney days. So all fondness, I think I would say. Honestly, sounds really great. That also, that makes me, makes me wonder, you know, staying in New York after going to school here, being a grad RA here, do, do you still like have that connection then with like that, that cohort? I mean, you were talking about, you know, how those things evolve, but is there still like that, that group of people that you still hang out with that you've stayed with kind of since you've graduated here? Yeah, a few. I think a lot of people come and go, right? I have friends from NYU who have left the city but then have come back. And then I have friends who stayed in the city for a few years and then left. So I think it's it's a little more situational. I'm also, I'm about to turn 36 at the end of the month. And so I'm just about the, at the age where a lot of my friends are having babies. And so once you have a baby, your life changes, right? And there are friends who I saw all the time who I really no longer see, but I don't hold it against them because, you know, if and when I want to have a child, I know I'm going to probably disappear off the face of the earth. So traveling also affords us opportunities to take some reconnections. Like uh, last summer, I happened to be in Portland where one of my fellow NYU RAs, Anne-Louise Blanc, is now and got to reconnect with her and had a drink. And, you know, just you kind of never know, right? Like Anne-Louise and I haven't really kept in touch since, but it was like we picked up right where we left off. From when we were, you know, in our RA days. So I think that's also really cool. I'd love to hear about your, you went to Harvard for your MBA. When you finished that, let's talk a little bit about your career trajectory and the choices you made post your second uh, graduate degree. At that point, you know, Harvard Business School was my fourth of four degrees. And so by then I feel like things were congealing. Whereas earlier on in that path, it was kind of this dual educational and career development approach where it was like, am I going to end up on the music side or am I going to end up on the business side? And I think by the time I got through business school, it had become clear that the gap that I feel best for the world is as an arts manager. Or, you know, I even though I'm with a giant public multimedia company now, the division I'm in still produces theater. And so I still consider myself an arts executive as opposed to just a general executive or general entertainment executive. So it was just very clear to me that the combination of my skills and my interests and my background and marrying that with where in the world is there a need and there's a 
is there a gap? And really the intersection of those two things was, Clive, you need to be an art manager and an art leader. And that's then what drew me to Lincoln Center, where fortunately Harvard Business School and Lincoln Center then had a partnership where HBS had a program that funded their graduates to go work in nonprofit and government institutions. And I think this is a really innovative thing that the school did because necessarily so, because a, uh, a lot of nonprofit and government institutions, A, don't think they can afford an MBA, and B, don't even know what to do with them. And so this program offset some of the cost of hiring an MBA. So Harvard co-funded the position for a year with the participating institution, and both the graduate and the institution had a year to kind of try it out and see, hey, organization, you decide if it's valuable for you to have an MBA, and individual, you decide if you can have a fulfilling career within a nonprofit or government institution. And I think that was great. So I spent a year doing that and, of course, loved it, and so stayed on for two more years and eventually was promoted to run the strategy team at Lincoln Center. And then three years into that, a job at Disney opened up, and it happened to be a brand new job that my then leader sort of invented because Disney Theatrical Group was really experiencing a period of double-digit growth. And I think he felt that the organization was growing a bit in spite of itself and stumbling forward and needed somebody to come and somebody who was not mired by anything day-to-day, but whose sole job was to think about how to plan for the future. And I thought that was very exciting. And me being a musical theater writer by background who then went to business school, it just made sense when, you know, the musical theater division of Disney needed a head of strategy, right? So I was like, who else is going to do this job? Obviously, it's me. And, you know, I'm about, I'm coming on five years, which is totally nuts, you know? Does anybody in their 30s stay anywhere for five years? <laughs> Not nowadays. Thinking about, about what you do, because it's, from from what you've talking about, it seems kind of like ethereal. Like, what, what what does it actually mean then that you do like developing the strategy for Disney Theatrical Group? Like, not being caught in the day to day. What does that What does that look like? I know it's so it's so difficult to explain my job, especially at a cocktail party. You know, in a in a setting like this, I feel like I'm supposed to over explain. But like, when people are like, "What do you do?" and I'm like. Yeah, let's talk about something else. <laughs> no no elevator pitch to like give them, you know, 30 seconds, done. Yeah. So what I always say about a strategy job is as much as it is in charge of long-range planning, the job actually ends up molding the individual more so than the other way around. So there are some recurring things that I have to do on a cyclical basis. Like I am the person that has to develop, you know, this thing called the five-year plan. And of course, the five-year plan is a detailed look at over the next five years, what we hope to accomplish as an institution. And because we're a public company that reports to shareholders, how much money we hope to make over the next five years, right? So that has to happen. Every year, I also have to work on the annual operating plan, which rather than a five-year frame takes on a one-year frame. But beyond that, the rest is kind of like, how does Clive and his team add value? for the rest of the organization from a planning perspective. And because everyone else who is in charge of a particular business line spends their day putting out fires, I get to jump in, help everybody else pull themselves out of the weeds, 
and take a look at, all right, so beyond these fires, what is our opportunity for growth? What are some challenges ahead? And how do we prepare ourselves now to get through those challenges and hopefully, you know, meet greater growth than you're even anticipating? So it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. What I love about the job is that you get to touch everything. You are the line that connects all the dots, the dots being all of the, you know, individual sort of business units. And, you know, necessarily so that that requires you to dabble in just about everything that's going on in the company. Sometimes it's frustrating because I actually own nothing. Like when someone asks me, like, what are you in charge of? The answer kind of is nothing. I'm really the in-house business planner, in-house business advisor, right, to everybody else. So I always tell people who might be thinking about a role in strategy, I warn them that, okay, you just have to be a person that's happy being the advisor. And you have to be okay not being the decision maker. And is that something that turns you on or not? And if not, maybe you should be thinking about a slightly different function, right? So how that actually manifests day to day is I'm pretty much in meetings like 75% of the day, which is also hard because I'm not so senior that I have minions doing everything for me, right? Like I actually also have to crank out work, which becomes a bit difficult because everyone else that I'm in meetings with all day, they don't actually have to then go back to their desks and crank out an Excel model or, you know, make a PowerPoint deck or whatever the deliverable may be. So that's a bit of a challenge of being beholden to everyone else's priorities where I spend all day in meetings with them and then I have to go back to my desk and do some of the work, right? It's great though. I mean, I, I do think sometimes we overdo the meeting part, like we're having a meeting to prep for the other meeting to prep for the other meeting, but thankfully we all like each other. So we, we, we like to spend time together. Makes a big difference. Clive, maybe we can go back the five years from when you started and think about the strategy you had five years ago. What has developed uh, through the strategy you created uh, today that may not have been there five years ago? Just to give people a context of what can happen over a period of time for strategic planning. Yeah. In fact, if I look to five years ago, we are absolutely not anywhere near where I said we were going to be, right? So that's also an amazing thing about strategy where it's not like anyone penalizes you for predicting it wrong, right? Because by nature, strategic planning is an aspirational exercise. It's really, it's not where do you think you'll be? It's where do you hope to be, right? So I always say that when we kick off any sort of strategic planning meeting to say, remember, this is a bit of a dreaming exercise. So let's not be mired in the obstacles and the barriers that, you know, may prevent us to get somewhere. And let's just dream for a second. So that's also great. Um, I remember when I first started, one of my first, you know, big mandates was, what is something that Disney people can do in the digital world? And that became a big focus in my, in my first couple of years. And I look back now and think about this amazing project that I got to shepherd from beginning to end, which was Disney Theatrical's very first stage to screen venture of Newsies. And Newsies was a Broadway show that closed in 2015, I believe, or was it 2014, and then went on tour. And I put together a business plan. It was a little bit controversial at the time because we hadn't done anything like this before, and people were worried that something like this may cannibalize our live shows. So really just had to build a rock solid business case by do 
doing a digital venture of one of our Broadway shows was racing for the company and got to do everything from the initial modeling to striking the deal with the production company to, you know, being there during the filming of the thing to striking all of the distribution deals with the cinemas and, you know, with the Netflixes and with whoever. Really, like, my first completely beginning-to-end project and my delight, this movie still, you know, every few months we get this accounting report that says Newsies, the movie has made another, you know, 250000 on a license on in this country or that country. And it's just, it's just so, so great to sort of have a baby that you created that needs to add value for the company. So that's definitely one of the highlights of, you know, my job here so far. I'm working on another, can't say what the title is, but hopefully we'll have a whole portfolio of these digitally distributed Disney on Broadway shows. I will say, I'm, I, for one, am thankful because getting to see that, that video of Jeremy Jordan in, in Newsies, like, if it hadn't been recorded, I I wouldn't have been able to see it. And so I am very happy that that all worked out and that, like, two weeks ago I was able to, to you know, on my computer watch it because it was such an extraordinary perform performance and the performers are all so great. Well, and the nice... Th- thing about that too is about access right through this that you know the the hundred and whatever dollar ticket for a broadway show these days yep. is not accessible to everybody and so having it through the digital media way makes a lot of sense uh for your your viewership absolutely we get random letters like i just got this letter from a lady named madeline in bend oregon she literally watched newsies the movie like eight times with her kids and was like do you know how life-changing this is and can you please do more because it's just you know and so it's just it's it's been so rewarding on so many fronts i'd like to ask whether or not you continue your musical performance because you're a really talented musician and writer oh thank you to be honest it's taken quite a bit of back burner for the first few years like during my lincoln center days i actually was still very connected to community and would be asked to, you know, can you play for this gala? Or, hey, can you accompany my cabaret? Or, hey, I, you know, I even got a commission for a new piece that ended up being premiered at Merkin Concert Hall right by Lincoln Center. I would say in the last three or four years that that activity has really dropped off. Just by natural sort of, I've just gradually been more and more disconnected from that community. But I still get to keep myself busy. Like, you know, I, I bought myself a Yamaha for my apartment. I play, I would say, every other day or so. I started a vocal group here at work. Where our, our initials are DTG, Disney Theatrical Group. So our, our vocal group is named DT Glee. We perform at staff functions, but it's great. I started this thing last year called the Friday Frolic, where, or no, two years ago, yeah. For summer Fridays, the whole office stops at 2 p.m. and we gather around the piano up and do an off-white thing along. I find ways. You're such a valued-centered person. Uh, what are the values that you look for uh, in people you would hire? So we have NYU students who are thinking about working for corporations like Disney or others, especially in the entertainment world. What are you looking for from, from a potential NYU undergrad? I think I would say the two things I immediately look for not only in people that I may work with, but people who I want in my life 
are one, curiosity. So somebody who always wants to ask that follow-up question or to dig a little deeper into, right? Because I find that that going down the intellectual path with somebody is a big value add, right? To both my work and to my life. And the second thing I would say, it's hard to generalize, but if I were to, I would call it empathy. I think that being a kind person really just takes you a long way in the corporate world. And if beyond everything else, you're not kind, I think that will always be a stopping point for you. It's also something that's very difficult to gauge in an interview situation. So, you know, when, when we recruit someone here, I also like to have the person see quite a few people because every person will experience the candidate slightly differently. So, yeah, curiosity, empathy, kindness, I think above all. And then there are some skill-specific things like political ability and all that, which I would even consider secondary. Like, first have to check those foundational boxes before it, it's even worth talking about whether or not you have the analytical chops to do the job. So. Great. Yeah. Stay, staying on the topic of, like, talking about undergraduates, talking about those still in school, what are you teaching at, at that, that school that we shall not name up north of us around... 110th Street, 116th Street over there. So funny. I was like, man, why am I not doing this at NYU instead? I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to say, Tish, you got to hire Clive. Come on, an alum. So this is my second year now teaching in the master's program in arts administration up at Columbia. And it's actually, it's a great program. It's been around for a few decades. And it just so happens that the professor that was teaching this course had taught it for, I think, like 32, something like that. And one of the graduates of the program, the colleague of mine here at Disney, and she happened to be very close with this professor and was his PA for two or three years. And when he was retiring, he said, hey, Pearl, do you know somebody who'd be great to teach the course? And that's when she came to me. And, you know, I did one of those sort of distinguished speaker talks up there. And right after that, they said, okay, great. Can you teach the course? You know, so I've been doing it for a couple of years. It's, it's really interesting. And, you know, I come from the business school path and these guys actually come from an artistic background, right? So kind of like me without the finance or without the MBA. And what I'm trying to do really is within the span of a course, impart like a miniature MBA boot campy type of thing. You know, give them some technical and analytical skills that will help them as art managers when they come out into the world. And I think even if some of them want to come out to be curators or, you know, heads of education or heads of whatever it is, programming, that the ability to critically look at financial statements, the ability to really critically think business challenges will be important to them no matter what. So enjoying it, I think, you know, I'll do it for a few years and sort of see. That's great. Why don't you tell us uh, um, what you're most proud of uh, accomplishing so far in your life? Mm. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> big question. <laughs> yeah. Some would say probably the biggest. Oh, man. I think I'm most proud of being a productive citizen of the arts community. 
you know, if I were to generalize it. And even though I'm not a practicing artist, I feel each and every day that, you know, with all my, every fiber of my being, that I'm contributing to the art world. And I'm a person that kind of hopes to go back and forth with profit and the commercial arts in my life. I wouldn't be surprised if one day I went back to, you know, work at a symphony or a theater company. And I think I'm an art person through and through. And I'm very proud of having found my, my unique path and my unique role as a business value creator within the greater art. I hope to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. You mentioned earlier how you went up to Portland, met up with, with one of your other fellow RAs. Do you still stay in contact with some of them? Do you want to give a shout out to, to any of your other, the other RA alums that, that you know, hope will, will listen to this? Yeah. You know, it's been sporadic, to be honest. But one person that I've stayed in touch with is Olga Mustafa who I saw, especially while I was in Boston, right, in business school. She was living there. Is great. I feel like Chanel and I have texted many, many times and just like don't really get our stuff together enough to meet up. But I'm okay with text relationships too, you know? <laughs> yeah, those, those are good, Clive, especially as someone as busy as you. Yes. It is time for speed round. We're going to give you a couple of seconds to answer some of these questions. Favorite NYU professor? That would be Rachel Schenken, who is a book writer lyricist. She wrote the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Ooh. Favorite Broadway show? I would say of all time is Little Shop of Horrors, which happens to be the first one I music directed in college. And this season, my favorite show is To Kill a Mockingbird. Gotta see it. What's the favorite memory about being an RA during your time here? One that always stands out in my mind was while I was an RA, I ran the New York City Marathon. And I remember it like it literally at between mile 25 and 26, like right when you're rounding the, to the finish line, coming on Central Park South, running on, on sort of on the bottom side of the park and seeing my fellow RAs with the, with the signs, you know, like screaming, oh my God, ah! I will never forget that. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. That's great. Sounds wonderful. Such an underachiever there, yeah. Clive. Casually uh, runs the New York Marathon. Yeah. Clive, thank you so much for spending time with Tom and I to discuss your journey, to discuss what you've been up to, where your life after NYU has taken you. And as always, thanks to our listeners who can stay connected with RA alums who are living the Dream School alumni version life. Clive, you are such an inspiration. You know, the thing that speaks to me most is your heart. You have a huge heart. You're a good person through and through, and you're ethical, and uh, you care. And all of those things are so, so easily seen when you spend some time with you. So I really appreciate you taking some time out of your very busy schedule to be with us. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. And likewise, Tom. Well, special thanks to my engineer, Juliana Fonseca Alesso, who is editing these from Paris, where she's been this semester, <laughs> and our current professional staff and the alums, such as David Jones and Joanna Champion, who assisted these great RAs in skill acquisition along the way. If you like today's show, look for more content on the RA alumni website, which will be premiering in June. And if you want to know more about RA's favorite books, which I read, go to the blog, whattheyreading.blogspot.com. And finally, feel free to tweet at me for a shout out. Until next time, try to make more smiles and laughs every day in every community that you design.